As I approach the message this morning, I, I just kind of need to, to tell you, um, this, this has been a, a strange uh, week of study. It's, it's, it's really been a struggle. And, and I'm saying this not because I, I want the attention to be on the speaker. That's not why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because, you know, I had some ideas of where I wanted to go with this. And, and boy, I, I just wasn't settled in it. And I know that the Lord is in that. But what, I'm, what I want to try to get across today, and, and, and we've built this up. This is more of an applicational message. But what I want to try to get across is just some of the, the, the main truths that, that Paul is dealing with in the book of Colossians as we uh, begin to take a look at this, this, this heresy. Uh, heresy is a fancy word for false teaching. Um, and and uh, that, that was something that was, that was uh, facing these people. I know there may be some, you've, you've missed some messages or whatever, so just be patient this morning as we kind of pace ourselves through this. But I, I just, I, I'm concerned that all of us would consider um, some of the messages that we're getting from the world, but I'm also concerned that, especially our young people, that you would just really try to stick with me this morning as I've asked you for, for several weeks, just because uh, I think it's, it's just a very pertinent topic. Now, with all that said, boy, like I say, earlier this week, man, I had stuff going. I was all excited, and I've got all these different things. And then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what good is this really going to do? Yeah, <laughs> I saw some faces out there, right? Some of you are like, <laughs> well, we dodged that one. But seriously, it's, it's trying to just distill this down into something that we can take away. And so if, if I achieve that, great. If I miss the mark a little bit, just please forgive me. But, but I, I, I just want us to get some things across. And as I said, we're going to be making some comparisons to, to some, some real-life things that are going on today. Uh, we've built up a lot of things. We've looked at a lot of scripture, and now this again is going to be a little more applicational. Um, so we're going to be covering again different aspects of Colossians two, and I do think that the Ephesians passage though was was a good underlayment for for what we're looking to do. So with that said, uh, what I want to do is is uh, just kind of um, as as really an introduction. Um, it's, it's really part of point number one, which is Paul's argument for Christ, is, is to remind ourselves of some things. Um, we have what, we, what I would call, and I'll use a big word first, but then we'll simplify it a bit. We have an evidentiary experience in following Jesus, meaning it's not just something that we feel. There, there are some facts behind what we believe. It is not a blind faith. There are verifiable prophecies that were written down hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born that he fulfilled about his birth, his life, and his death. Folks, just something to think about. You can't control how you're born. And unless you're God, you're really not going to control how you die. Right? Right? I mean, yes, of course, we can say you take your own life, but my, my point is that there are an awful lot of things about the story of Jesus that he fulfilled that, humanly speaking, you can't control, and he fulfilled them to a T. There are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. 
We have them in God's word. And because we say it's God's word, some people just outright say, eh, they reject that. But they are historical accounts, multiple accounts of Jesus' life. There are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' death and burial. There are eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. As we illustrated last week, over 500 people saw him after he rose again. We also have extra-biblical historical, historical accounts of Christ. I'm not going to go into all that this morning. That's, that's not the case I'm trying to make, but they're out there, okay? The apostles' tremendous life change and self-sacrifice is a witness, is an evidentiary witness of, of what Jesus did for them. As I tried to explain a little bit last week, why would any of these men do something that cost them everything that they literally gave their lives up for if it was all just a fake, if it was all just something that was made up. There was no gain, not even, not even commercial gain to be made. These guys weren't making movie deals, right? <laughs> they weren't writing books. They, they were being killed for their testimony for Christ. Then there was the large number of believers that we see responding to their message in the very beginning. In the book of Acts, thousands of people at a time. And, and can I just warn ourselves here? I, I, I've heard people say this. we got to get back to the book of Acts. We've got to have those times when it was a very specific time. Okay, All these people saw the events that were going on. They witnessed what happened. And then Peter says, you killed him. Right? You allowed this to happen. And what did they say? What must we do to be saved? Thousands came to know Christ. Then there was the initial filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. But when he came, it wasn't just a few people. It was 70 plus where the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And immediately they were able to speak in an unknown language, I'm sorry, in a known language that they did not know, they were able to speak forth that as a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit and also as a way to tell others about Jesus. We're talking about an international community, so to speak, in Jerusalem. So all these things are, I believe, showing us that there is evidence to what we have experienced. It's not just a blind faith. So what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes is just comparing what we have learned about Jesus and comparing what we have learned about false teachers. First off, and I hope you can see that well enough, who is Jesus? We're told he's the grace of God in truth. We're also told that he is the image of the true God. Not an image of the true God, the image of the true God. He created all things. Everything spoke it into existence. By him, all things consist or hold together. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we trust in. He's the head of the church. He's over all believers of all time, past, present, and future. He's the firstborn from the dead. This doesn't mean that he at one time had a beginning. He's eternal. But when we're talking about him coming to this earth and dying for us, 
He's the first one to resurrect just as all who are in him will resurrect. Okay? That they will not remain dead. He is the preeminent, supreme, or the sovereign one, the one who's in control of all things. And again, this is all coming from the book of Colossians. In Christ, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Talk about a mouthful, right? There there isn't anything lacking in Jesus when it comes to deity. He is God. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's similar to 119. I got ahead of myself a little bit. So here we have just this picture of what uh, Paul says to the Colossians. And what I want to remind us of, we talked about this a while ago. Colossians is, is one of, I think it is the most Christ-centered uh, uh, letter that Paul wrote. Certainly the Gospels talk all about Jesus. That's, that's what their task was. But this is a Christ-centered gospel. Yes, he talks about other things, but he talks a huge amount about Jesus himself. Not about Jesus, but actually who Jesus is. Now let's look at what we are facing when it comes to false teaching. Empty deception. Persuasive words. And the idea here is slick speech, right? Uh, no offense to anybody's profession, but it's like the used car dealer mentality, right? Do I have a deal for you? Right? That's, that's the idea here. Human reasoning. Okay? Sorry, and wisdom. <laughs> Traditions of men. The things that men say we ought to practice and do, not the things that God says we ought to practice and do. Elementary worldly principles. And the way we described this was they're really simple things. Like they're, they're, not, they're not really complex issues that, that people are trying to get across. If you really boil it down, they're very elemental things. Um, they're not really tackling the true issues that people need, which is the gospel. They were likened in Luke 6.43 to ravenous wolves. That's what a false teacher's character is like. And then, it is not of Christ. So this is the battle that is taking place, folks. Who Jesus is and how those who oppose him want to come in through all these different devices want to change our thinking or change anybody's thinking so that at least they're not thinking about who Jesus is or who he is correctly. All right? That is the battle that we are struggling with. Which then brings us to the heresy itself. And when I say the Colossian heresy explained, I've, I've tried to kind of, you know, let you know about this. Folks, they don't know exactly what was going on here. We're going to give some elements of this, all right? But there are two perspectives to this heresy, to this false teaching. The first one is the heresy was primarily rooted in Judaism. That's what, that's what some people believe. Uh, we can summarize Judaism as those who followed the law and the traditions that the rabbis added to the law. 
Okay, that was the Judaism of the day. So it was the law, and we can even say the Old Testament, and then the commentaries related to the Old Testament. Okay, that's what, that's what the people were following if they followed Judaism. The second aspect is the heresy was primarily rooted in mysticism. All right, that's what other people would say. So we have one camp that would say primarily it's a Jewish thing. For other people, primarily it's a mystical thing. Well, let me help us with that, all right? Merriam-Webster, thank you very much. Mystical, the belief that direct knowledge of God, spiritual truth, or ultimate reality can be attained through subjective experience such as intuition or insight. In other words, somehow in some way we can mystically, magically gain uh, access to God to, to gain some type of enlightenment or whatever that might be, Okay. And obviously, just because of all the religions that are out there and the fact that there's so much a mystical side to them, uh, that's why Merriam-Webster is kind of vague, okay? So as we think about these two things, the vast majority would say that there was still a mix to one degree or another of these two elements. And that, that, that's pretty much in agreement, that there was a Jewish side to it and there was then this more mystical side to it. A, a spiritual side to it, okay? And so what mix was where is kind of where the rub comes in as far as how to explain this. But let's understand, when we say that there was a mixture of Judaism and mysticism, we can't forget it was also a mixture of Christianity. This was the struggle. If they would have just come in and said, hey, I've got this kind of sort of, you know, hybrid religion I want you to hear about. They would have been like, well, no, we're, we're followers of Christ. So Christianity was mixed in here too, okay? Just enough to where it was a threat. Does this sound familiar today? Yeah. All right. The fancy word for this is syncretism, which means to blend two or more belief systems together, all right? It's, it's kind of like when someone likes Ohio State and Michigan at the same time, okay? I know. See, you're laughing. You can't do it. So anyway, all right. Even scholars who lean heavily toward a Jewish false teaching believe that there was a strong mystical side to this group. So what we can conclude is they really went beyond Judaism. They really weren't practicing that, okay? So... For what it's worth, what I really believe here is that there's a stronger case for a Jewish background. And what I want to do is basically, though, take a look at the main elements that we have, an overview of the elements of this teaching in Colossians 2. If you look at verse 16 in Colossians, I'm sorry, chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for a while. So Colossians 2.16, we're just going to, again, look at the overview of these elements right now. It says here, Therefore, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Okay? So here he is warning them about the Sabbath observance, which is obviously purely Jewish. But then there were dietary guidelines and festival feast days um, that may have had a Jewish background. They probably did. But this is also where we can have elements of false teaching being incorporated from other religions. 
Um, almost every religion has some type of feast days or specific times that, that they, that they uh, consider to be important. And many times they do revolve around what's happening out in space, right? Whether it be the sun or the moon or whatever. So there could have very well been some other things incorporated into their view of, of um, religion, okay, and their view of God. Now, if you'll go down to verse 21, it says, um, Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. All right. This was something that, again, was an element of what they were told. Folks, again, we're going to use some bigger words here, but just hang on tight. We're going to, you know, the, the word here is asceticism, which basically means depriving yourself of something in order to demonstrate your spiritual discipline. Okay. So an ascetic, we think of maybe someone like a monk, right, where they're, they, they dress a certain way. And they, and they hold themselves back from society, possibly, or other things. And we'll talk about that a little bit more a little bit later. But the false teaching had a number of absolute restrictions that people needed to abide by. We know that by what the text says here. Don't do this, don't do that, right? This is often the case in false teaching. The rules become the measure of how devoted you are to the teaching. Now, by the way, it's a good opportunity for us to just stop and remember, okay, there are things that we're supposed to do and not do as Christians, but it's not just the keeping of the rules that makes us spiritual. Okay? We obey because we love, and we obey because of who we are in. We don't obey so that we will achieve. Big difference. So we see again that Paul doesn't address these teachings as exclusively Jewish. If they were here, the latter would have sounded much more like the letter to the Galatian church. He would have compared directly to Judaism. He doesn't do that. And then the next part is in verse 18. So if you'll skip back there. It says, Let no one defraud you of reward, taking delight of false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, again, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more in the future. But what we have here is an element of what is called transcendence. That's a cool word, isn't it? Um, basically, transcendence, the idea here is to exceed, to surpass, or to rise above. All right? So part of what they did here was worshiping angels. Some would say this is worship of angels. Some would say this is entering into somehow worshiping with angels. Uh, either way, the point was, it was secret. It was, it was this, this extra information. It was this, this thing that we could latch onto and do that caused us to rise above what everybody else had, right? So this transcendence, this exceeding, this surpassing, this rising above is either by... Uh, uh, a higher or a secret knowledge, or by a special experience. And again, let's not forget that they had mixed in the elements of Christianity. So somewhere along the line, they would have thrown in some things about Jesus. They would have thrown in some things that sounded very Christianese to all of this. 
and especially for a group of folks who were building in their faith, as we've talked about, some of these things might have sounded attractive or they might have sounded legitimate, which again is why Paul is writing to them. One of the biggest differences that I truly believe between true Christianity and most false teaching is what I would call directional. The difference is directional. Think, think with me for a minute. False teaching says that we must reach up to God, right? We must achieve. They say this is attained through good works or character or by strictly denying ourselves or completely abstaining from different kinds of self-indulgences. So it's all performance-based. Examples would be fasting, maybe even fasting to excess, uh, celibacy or abstinence, even in marriage, depriving ourselves of physical comfort, doing without or with little money or belongings. Um, it, it could be reflected in the clothing that someone wears or their appearance. Um, you know, we talk about monks, and immediately you might think of the... the um, uh, Franciscans or the friars or whatever, you know, where they have the, the, the many times it's a, like a brown robe or whatever. But most religions have some type of a priest or a monk. You think of Hinduism or Buddhism. They, they all have those, and they're, they're the ascetics. They're the ones that are putting these, these things aside. And they're also those who are trying to more, uh, with more effort, transcend. Okay, So when it comes to transcendence or reaching a higher spiritual level, it may come through meditation, secret rituals, or some kind of created experience. These are all the different ways that we, that we somehow, our, our mind is raised up to this level, this greater level of spirituality. But the true gospel says that Christ came to us, that God came to us. Our direction. Now, not in the sense of, oh, I need them so much. <laughs> right? It's because we need him so much. We were powerless to do anything on our own. We weren't seeking him. So he had to come seek us. The gospel says that it's impossible for either knowledge or experience alone to transcend which is a fancy way of saying to have a relationship with God, right? The gospel is that Jesus Christ came, that Christ lived, that Christ died, and that he rose again so that we could have life. When we say that Christ died, we mean that Christ suffered the consequences of our sin. He paid the debt. He reconciled us to God. He gave his life so that we could have eternal life. That is what we mean by that. The true gospel says that we now have the knowledge that we need to know Jesus. We have all we need. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't grow in it, right? But we have that. The true gospel says that God is in us and we are in him. He dwells in us and gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment toward the promised eternal life to come. If we have placed our faith in what Jesus did for us, Jesus said, that the Holy Spirit was going to come and he was going to indwell you. And we believe that takes place at the point of salvation. That God resides in us. The true gospel even sees a believer's future state as a present reality. 
a present reality we are already living out. In other words, when God sees us through what Christ did for us and our placing our confidence in that, putting our faith in him, he sees a perfect person. He sees a finished work. Are we to grow in Jesus? Yes. Are we to increase our knowledge of him? Yes, we've already seen that in the book of Colossians here. Are we to spend our energy finding out how to connect with God on a higher level? Absolutely not. There is no hidden path or secret formula from some elite club members only relationship with God. It does not exist. We all have equal access to God himself through Jesus Christ. Now, before we move into what I would call the false teaching area of this, I think it's healthy to dispel a myth common in the church. Not saying it's necessarily here, but I still want to say it. It's the improper distinction of church leadership. The spiritual leaders of the church are not a higher spiritual level attainable to the, unattainable to the common folk. There are people sitting here today that are smarter than I am, more talented than I, more articulate than I, more patient than I, more passionate in worship than I am, better servants, better husbands, and on and on I can go. God does not require that I am on top of every possible category. God requires that I have a consistent, mature faith and that I can teach. Other than teaching, name one thing in the qualifications of a deacon or elder that are not supposed to be fulfilled by every person in this room. Now, I have to stop and say, okay, maybe some of you aren't married. But beyond that, we're supposed to all fulfill that same character. The issue is, is that when it comes to an elder or a deacon, we have to do that. There is no special spiritual plane for pastors, deacons, missionaries, and the like. We are all sheep in need of the leading of the shepherd every step of our lives. A gentleman by the name of David Mathis, executive director of DesiringGod.org, says this, Our leaders need to be held accountable and not held in such high esteem that we give them a pass on the normal Christian life. Pastors should be with the people. Shepherds should smell like sheep because they live and walk among the sheep and are not sequestered from the flock. We need pastors who know themselves first and foremost as sheep and only secondarily as leaders and teachers. Now, why did I say all that? Because I've seen it. I've heard it. An artificial elevation simply because someone, yes, has some authority, has some responsibility, but we're no different, folks. We are all equal before Christ. So now let's take a look at this idea here of the contemporary examples of empty philosophy. Now, again, I've told you folks, I'm really trying to, we have a lot of scripture and a lot of study behind this. We've only looked at a few verses today, but it's all pointing to this whole, aside from that huge list that you saw, right? But it's all pointing to how these things are now coming together, all right? This was the struggle that Paul was trying to help the Colossians with. 
At this point, we don't believe they were succumbing, but he saw the danger. So what are some elements that we have today that can be an issue? The first one, I believe, is spiritualism. And I'm going to define these things. A view growing in popularity as for, uh, is for a person to simply declare that they are spiritual. They acknowledge there is a part of them we would call a soul, right? As, as they say, we are spiritual beings. This generally means that a person is not an atheist, but doesn't necessarily adhere to one specific belief system. As a matter of fact, for many of them, they'll adapt to all different kinds of belief systems, similar to what we just said earlier. People who label themselves as spiritual often believe that there are many ways to God or heaven or truth. They would say something like, your truth is your truth and my truth is mine. We are all really heading in the same destination. We are just on different but relatively equal paths. You heard that before, folks? All right. For many, their belief system is like Plato. It can be molded and changed into whatever they feel that they need. Oprah Winfrey stated, this is a number of years ago now, that she didn't like some of the things that she was hearing about God at her church. So she simply removed the parts that she didn't like. That's convenient, isn't it? I mean, that's literally what she said. So let me just pause here for a moment and say this. We're going to talk about some things that that we're facing today in false teaching. I, I want to stress We don't have a war against people. We have a war against the spiritual ideas that are motivating those people. All right? So I don't want uh, anybody here to think, okay, he's getting political or he's starting to criticize. I'm not saying that I'm going to say all behavior is good. (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is, is that I'm not out to attack anybody. I'm really not. Um, I I think in doing so, we really miss the heart of Christ when it comes to the world that we face. After spiritualism, another one is individualism. Individualism is the concept that a single person has greater significance than a group, that each individual has their own inherent worth that should not be diminished by others. The Bible actually holds a high regard for the individual. Probably doesn't surprise you. You probably heard that phrase and said, that's not so bad. We can see how God worked in the lives of Abraham, Joseph, Ruth, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, and we can go on and on and on. God cares about the individual. In a general way, God's word confirms the worth of all people. We were made in God's image. However, We were not created to be independent, self-determining, self-reliant, and self-affirming beings. You get that? Our culture is pushing a radical individualism where each person is their own mini-kingdom. The world has been instructing all of us, but especially our young people, for decades in the philosophy that says, follow your heart or pursue your dreams. The false teachers often add, don't let anyone or anything stand in the way of your dreams. That would include your parents. That would include your Bible. That would include potentially the one you say is your God. 
This has subtly more from emphasizing whatever someone wants to be make make, to make of themselves into whoever they want to be. Meaning, I can make my own identity. Does that sound familiar? I want to read for you something by a gentleman named Walt Mueller. He was talking about this issue uh, and, and youth ministry and, and how, how the, the challenges that are there and what, what the church needs to do. Listen to what he says. I am still haunted by a conversation I had with an influential youth pastor a few years ago. When I asked him about how he comes to conclusions on big questions of life as a leader and teacher of kids, he responded, I just follow my heart. Tears filled my eyes. I responded, if I had chosen to live my life in this way, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I'd probably be in prison. That's what the author said. Then he says, why would we ever allow emotions to direct our teaching and leading? Truth is to direct our teaching and leading. The next area is experientialism. Simple definition is what we experience is as good or better than any other source of knowledge. Right? So what I experience in life becomes my truth. Simple example of that might be that if we had a bad experience with a certain brand of car, who hasn't, uh, then we conclude by our experience that that car company can't make a good car. And that is now my truth. And you can't convince me otherwise. Now, by the way, I can't say I blame you for that one, but the point is, right, that might not be the truth. Spiritually speaking, someone could also say that they had some sort of religious experience. Their experience is their truth, even if that experience contradicts the word of God. Right? So let's kind of play out these philosophies in real time. Let's think through some of these things. Have you ever heard something like this? Uh, There we go. Good morning. This is God. I'll be handling all of your problems today. I will not need your help, so have a miraculous day. Now, on the surface, does that sound bad? I mean, just at, at first blush, right? Well, the gentleman said that his name is Wayne Dyer. One of Wayne Dyer's books has sold over 100 million copies. Yeah. One of his books. He is a huge star. Was. Sorry, the man's dead. In motivational speaking. At his death, he was worth over $20 million. So, so much for asceticism, right? He wasn't doing without, even though he advocated it. Another little problem with false teachers. But anyway, listen, Wayne Dyer, he had a way with words. Um, I, I watched some of his specials on PBS a couple of times, purposefully. Because I'm like, this guy, I mean, he sounds great, but he's a whack job. I mean, just to be blunt about it. And so what I wanted to do was first hit you with this because, man, this sounds really good. But now let's see what he says about God, 
right? Remember, good morning, this is God. I'll be handling all your problems today. I will not need your help, so have a miraculous day. Now, first of all, even what he says, and let me back up. I can't give you all this information. You have to trust me on this. Folks, they contradict each other all the time. They're chameleons. They will tell you what you want to hear. They will feed on your selfish desires. They'll find where they can connect with you. All right? So here's Wayne Dyer's God. Who is the ultimate dreamer? Call it as you will. God, higher consciousness, Krishna, spirit, whatever pleases you. One dream, remember this is God. One dream, that's God. One dreamer. Billions of embodied characters acting out that one dream. Your true essence is that you are part and parcel of the one big dream. You didn't know that, did you? You see how subtle and dangerous this is? And I just stuttered. But anyway, listen, folks. I'm telling you, the burden that I have today is that we see this stuff sounds good on the surface until you start getting into the layers. See something else that Wayne Dyer said. Act as if what you intend to manifest in life is already a reality. Eliminate thoughts of, of conditions, limitations, or possibly uh, um, of it not manifesting. If left undisturbed in your mind and in the mind of intention simultaneously, it will germinate in the physical world. Now, let me just translate that for you. If you really think hard enough, you can make something happen. You can literally bring something into existence. Now, let me give you one of the examples that I remember seeing him say. Um, I mentioned to you that the guy was worth $20 million, right? I mentioned to you that he was a sought, and I said he was a sought big time in this, so he's a sought after speaker. He said he was at the airport one day, and there was a problem, and he, it looked like he wasn't going to be able to get on the plane. And so he explained to those who were, you know, helping him to get on the plane, right? I don't I can't remember what he called those people. I know stewardess. But I anyway, he said, I need, I need to be on this plane. And then, he, then he's told his audience, right, uh, P- PBS, public broadcasting audience, that he then just sat back and he just lived in his intention. That's what he did. And he intended himself onto the plane. He, he, he got a seat. Now, it had nothing to do with that he was probably like some black diamond member, you know, or something like that. It had nothing to do with that he was a multimillionaire in first class. It had nothing to do with that, right? But here's where my mind goes. And I'm not being smart. Yeah, I am a little bit. What if there was somebody else that really needed to be on that plane that read his book that was also intending and didn't make it? Were they just not intending enough? Were they just not God enough? Were they not dreaming vividly enough? What's the standard? Right? 
Then there's the issue of, all right, let's put this same thought into a struggling family's life. And what we tell them is this, you know what? If you just intend, all your bills are going to go away, right? Your kids are going to have enough to eat. You see where I'm going with this, folks? It sounds good. And it sounds great to someone who's making sixty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 a year. Because then I can just feel good about myself and think. But it's empty. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Here's another quote. The first place we lose the battle is in our own thinking. If we think it is permanent, then it's permanent. If we think we've reached our limits, then we have. If you think you will never get well, then you won't. You have to change your thinking. You need to see everything that holds you back, every obstacle, every limitation, as only temporary. Now, it's easy to pick on, folks, but he's one of many. And let me tell you something. Do you think that there is not one true believer that's in the audience of these people? There probably is. But they've been caught up into this. Here's another quote. The moment you speak something out, you give it birth. This is a spiritual principle, and it works whether what you are saying is good or bad, positive or negative. And then, this is a separate quote, but it's along the same lines. Don't talk about the way you are. Talk about the way you want to be. That, too, is Joel Osteen. Here's the next quote. You create your thoughts. Your thoughts create your intentions. Your intentions create your reality. Folks, what's the difference? (laughs) What's the difference? Those two things that we just looked at, one person says they are a Christian. Look, I can throw up some quotes from from, uh, um, Joel Osteen that you will definitely agree with, and frankly, they're true. They're not just good sounding. There's biblical precedent for what what he says. These are not those. So... Does fresh water and salt water come out of the same well? No. Can a good tree produce bad fruit? Can a bad tree produce good fruit? No. No. I want to merge all this together and kind of look at a couple of things in real time. And folks, I I know that for some of you, you are working very hard to protect your children uh, from, you know, the world, and I commend you for that. But frankly, there's no way that we can isolate. We really need to work on insulating. There's a difference. We can't isolate. We can't keep all this from them. And so I've tried to be careful about how I say what I'm going to say, but I want to give you a couple of scenarios, kind of taking these different things, right? 
the spiritualism and the individualism and these other things that we looked at, right? Transcendence, all these different things and kind of putting them together. I'm going to speak in the first person, but it's not about me. just want to make sure. I am a 50-something male who determines that I am and actually always have been a female. I have made my choices by my experiences and my feelings. I want to be true to the person that I believe I really am inside. My life will revolve around what I consider to be my identity or the real me. I will change my appearance, my behavior, my relationships will almost certainly change. I demand that everyone around me not only accept my choices, but affirm my sense of reality. I am a college student. I have come to appreciate that all of the social norms I've grown up with are simply constructs of how past generations thought people ought to live. My experiences prove that these were by nature oppressive because my parents wouldn't let me have certain things. Sorry, that oozed out there. <laughs> uh, I apologize about that. My experiences prove that these were by nature oppressive and or destructive in one or more ways. I am a deeply spiritual person. I'm a vegan. I will only wear natural fibers and make every effort not to use fossil fuels of any kind. I strongly believe that I have a spiritual and moral obligation to oppose, remove, and replace the old ways. You have no right to think differently. That's where we're at, folks. It's not us against the world. Right? It's not. It's us in Christ for the world. Yes, we need to be able to defend ourselves. We need to be able to protect one another. We need to be able to protect our children. There are ravenous wolves out there that want to tear us apart spiritually. And they will use any means possible. Now, what I don't have listed up here is how this is how they operate, not their motives. We'll get into that. Like I say, we can't cover everything. But the, the burden that I have this morning is to help us understand that there is a spiritual war that is taking place and it's very serious. I do believe that I understand where most folks are, which side you're on. But what I want you to understand is this. Christ truly is all you need. There isn't anything bigger and better out there you're not going to find happiness somewhere else. Now, it might be that there could be someone in the room that says, fine, you know, you say all this stuff, that's great. I don't believe anything. I think I live, I die, and I'm worm food. Um, because you don't have an idea of transcendence because you don't have 
uh, a moral code or whatever, you know, maybe a moral code, you, you don't have any sense of spirituality doesn't mean that you're right. I'm not being smart, folks. The reality is God the Son came to this earth to give his life for sinners. He rose again, which we're going to be celebrating in a couple of weeks. He rose again so that he could show us that we truly can have life in him. Eternal life. Yes, we're waiting for it. Yes, we're going to be better when we get there. But the scriptures tell us that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Our salvation is complete. Living out our salvation is not. We have some growing to do. We're to be more like Jesus. No argument there. But there's no secret shortcut. There's no magical mountaintop. There's no advantage from one person to the other. But that's good. (laughs) Because how do we top the Savior that we have pictured here? How do we top that? The supreme ruler over all things who gave up everything to give his all for those who deserved nothing. That is who we serve. And oh, by the way, in turn, we received everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a feeble attempt. At trying to understand, trying to explain the, the, the struggle that we truly have. It's real, it's difficult, but at the same time, in some ways we can look at it, Lord, and say, it's not our fight. Yes, we need to be a part of the battle, but you tell us that you have already won this battle. You tell us that true victory is in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we have confidence in your Son. Not just that confidence that we're saved, but that daily trust, that daily living out what we believe. As we grow together in faith, Lord, I pray that we'll help one another, protect one another, encourage one another. Yes, we need to be aware of what's out there. Paul had that same message for the Colossians. But Lord, may we not fear We place our confidence in you. In Christ's name, amen.